0: Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the climatic, political, and social dynamics at play that have helped set the country of Australia ablaze, both literally and figuratively. Clips today come from the Mother Jones podcast, The Brian Lehrer Show, Diane Rehm, On My Mind, On the Media, Behind the News from Jacobin Radio, The Green News Report, and The Michael Brooks Show.
1: This happens all the time in Australia, and there are worse fire seasons than others. What makes this so unprecedented is the scale of it, and the number of fires that are burning continuously. These have been going on for months, since at least September, during our, what was the end of winter then, and we're just beginning the fire season proper now. Uh, My home state of New South Wales has about 130 plus fires still burning there many dozen more in victoria the the state to the south 2019 was of course the hottest and driest year on record in australia beats all the records and this is what firefighters and climate scientists have been warning us about i was reading a 2008 government report as is my want <laughs> And even in that report, it said, 2020, watch out for 2020. This is a season that you're going to start seeing the actual effects of climate change in the bushfire season. We call them bushfires in Australia, called wildfires here. A little difference you'll hear throughout this show.
2: NYC studio at motherjones.com. <laughs> Mark West. <laughs> How are you? Welcome home.
1: Jamila, back to my brother.
3: This morning, a mass evacuation underway as thousands flee their homes, escaping an apocalyptic site in Australia.
1: When we couldn't reach him over New Year's Eve, it was in fact because he was one of thousands caught up in an evacuation zone.
4: Australian authorities have told tens of thousands to leave their homes. Rural fire services' priority is to evacuate tens of thousands of holidaymakers. When he finally got out
1: of this area, which is the size of half of New Jersey, I got him on the phone.
2: Yes, we made it back yesterday. It was a very long journey. It took, well, a journey that shouldn't take all that long took us, you know, a day pretty much in total. But uh, yes, we made it back.
1: So you're down on the South Coast with the family, you're having a holiday. How do you start to begin to make the decision that you have to
2: get out? Some point on our first or second day there, we lost power. There was a blackout. So we lost all power and we also lost all mobile coverage or any mobile coverage that we had. So we were completely incommunicado, really, and also no power whatsoever. It, it was very old school. We were talking to the neighbors. And then uh, at one point, uh, Eugenia, my partner, she got on the bike and rode 10Ks to Narooma where there were um, regular fire briefings by the by the local services there. And that's when they were saying... The whole area the whole area when i mean when I say the whole area i mean the whole south coast is now a danger zone, and anybody that doesn't need to be here, anyone that's a tourist should should get out. The power came back on i uh, I drove down to the uh local petrol station, and so I sat in the queue for a little while um well for a long while for a few hours a few hours in in the in the gas line a few hours, yeah.
4: Getting petrol or diesel proved a challenge for thousands stranded since before New Year's Eve. They queued overnight and for hours today. A precious resource in an emergency where power is still out in much of the region.
2: Got petrol, cleaned up the house and and basically left. Main route up back to Sydney was was blocked by a number of fires. Uh, A couple of the routes back to Canberra were blocked by by fires that had been going for some time. The road very south was blocked uh, by the new fires that had sprung up. So there was kind of one road out. We drove through Cobargo, which I, th- I think has made international news, the, the burnt-out mm. place. It's where the, the Prime Minister was the other the other day and where he got accosted by, by local people.
5: Because our town doesn't have a lot of money, but we have hearts of gold, Mr Prime Minister. No, nah, you're an idiot, mate. Oh. What about the people who are dead <laughs> now, Mr Prime Minister? What about
6: the people who have
7: nowhere to live? You're not welcome, you fuckwit.
2: That place was completely burnt out. We drove through there There. the... There are trees still burning, fields that are farms, farms of something. But, you know, it hasn't rained down there for ever. They're dry as, it just looked like dirt on the way there, on the way back, completely black. It must be so hot. The stories you hear about mountains in the distance exploding and then fires racing down the hills and just scorching the earth. I, I I honestly thought if you stood in the middle of a paddock, you'd be okay in a bushfire, but... Clearly not. Like these places were just scorched earth. It was it was a war zone through there. It was just it was awful.
8: Umair, I think when we have thought about the effects of climate change and how it's gonna uh how it's going to uh basically cause havoc in our world in the decades ahead. The countries that we tend to think about most or the places we think about most would be, you know, like low-lying places like Bangladesh that would flood more or maybe islands in the South Pacific or even possibly places like Alaska with a lot of glacier that's in retreat. I don't think Australia was on the top of anyone's list as a country that was going to really suffer in climate change. So are we seeing the effects of climate change and should we adjust how we think about what those effects are going to be?
9: Well, uh to push back on that point, I mean a lot of Australian scientists have been warning for a long time that Australia is uniquely vulnerable to climate change for a lot of intrinsic regions about where it is in the world and some of the unique environment. But uh to your point about like early uh sea level rise and affecting these island countries I mean in a way Australia is affected by that as well they're facing something of a refugee crisis from some of these island countries and uh there are a lot of people that are trying to get into Australia who are fleeing areas that have been you know damaged by sea level rise or extreme weather as well so on that front Australia was already dealing with this and then Uh, Yeah, because of the fact that, you know, Australia is both a tropical country and also a very desert country that also uh, enters into the uh, Antarctic circulation patterns. It has a very volatile climate that tends to get very prone to extremes, just to begin with, as what's normal is actually very highly variable. So when that happens on top of a warming trend, on top of a drying trend, the extremes get just that much more extreme. Australia has been warming faster than the global average, and parts of Australia are getting drastically drier. And so that has had huge Ripple effects through, you know, their economy through, like agriculture, through, uh, you know, towns that basically just don't have water, Um, and and it's having huge infrastructure problems as well, and so. Uh, yeah, I mean, the Australian scientists have been warning for literally decades that this is a scenario that could happen, specifically these kinds of extreme wildfires. There was a report that came out in 2008 that said that we would see a climate signal in wildfires by 2020. And so that report just came out to be very prescient and it just reemerged recently. So yeah, it, it is something that a lot of people have been paying attention to. And I, um, it's kind of, uh, the canary in the coal mine. It's kind of the on the front lines, the vanguard of some of the worst effects of climate change. But, uh, Other parts of the world should be paying attention because um, this may not be far off for them.
8: So Australian scientists have been warning about this, but maybe the rest of us weren't listening, at least uh, all the way on the other side of the globe. Were Australians listening to Australian scientists? I mean, that has been an issue. Yeah. I mean, the uh,
9: big concern has been that the government has been kind of lackadaisical in its response. Um, Australia did, you know, a few years ago pass an economy-wide carbon tax to help mitigate its own greenhouse gas emissions, and then it became the first country in the world to repeal it. Because, you know, pressure from the coal lobby. And so, yes, on one hand, Australians are very keenly aware that climate change is a concern. Polling shows that they consider it a priority and it's something that their government should deal with. But in terms of the actions it's willing to take, I mean, I think those have been much more lacking. And I think that's starting there's being a bit more of a reckoning now with Australian politics for, you know, the lack of action that we've seen and even just the lack of preparedness for some of the extreme scenarios that scientists have been warning for for decades.
8: Umer Irfan, have you already started thinking about what the landscape of Australia is going to look like when this winds down, whenever that is? What do you think that we can expect to see?
9: I mean, I think Australia is going to be reeling from these fires for a very long time. I mean, I think the one case study we can probably look at is what happened in California with, you know, the 2018 fires, which were the worst on record. I mean, the state is still reckoning from that. I mean, the largest, the uh, largest utility in the state went bankrupt and that there's still liability claims being paid out. There's still health issues that are uh, rippling from that as well. I mean, I think as the caller pointed out, I mean, one of the biggest consequences of these fires isn't just the burning, but the pollution and the smoke. And when you have millions of people in these big cities in the coast breathing that air in, those health consequences are going to be uh, meted out for um, even years. And so the true cost of these fires are going to continue to be paid by Australians with their tax dollars and in their lives for for a very long time and this is something that uh based on based just on how unprecedented they are the fact that very few australians can get away from them i mean this is something that's going to stay on their minds for a very long time and very likely it'll ripple into the next election as well so um yeah that's what the the, as they reconstruct i mean i think this is something that's going to haunt them for um for some time
3: And the temperatures right now in various parts of Australia one hundred and six hundred and seven is that normal for this time of year
7: well it 's actually below what some of the temperatures were a week or two ago where they where they were set records um, in consecutive days they got up to about one hundred and twenty in large parts of the country, and the average for the entire country was well over a hundred. Um, so these are unusually warm temperatures. They're not at the moment record-setting temperatures, but it's one reason why the fires are so devastating because of the heat and the, and the dry conditions that they're living through right now. It makes the bush much more flammable.
3: Help me to understand the impact not only on the land and the animals, but on the human beings themselves.
7: There, there are several different Aspects of that. Um, the one that concerns me most is the the smoke from the wildfires. Um, now there are two things to understand about the smoke from wildfires. The first is that it actually is carbon. Um, plant life is like coal. It stores carbon and when it burns, it releases carbon. So these fires in Australia will, by the time they're finished have at least doubled the annual carbon emissions of the entire Australian country. That means that they will have produced as much CO2 emissions as the entire country and its entire economy and industry for the entire year. That's terrible for the outlook of the future of the planet. And it's one of what scientists call the feedback loops that they're most worried about, that because warming conditions would produce more fires, we would also end up producing more carbon, which produces more warming. Um, But there are direct health effects of that smoke too. And those are quite scary and concerning. And it's one of the aspects of of this situation, I think, that is not quite so well understood yet. Millions of people around the world die every year from air pollution of this kind. In places like Australia, the US, and the EU, It's it's not often all that common. But even low levels of exposure to this kind of smoke can affect your cognition, can affect your Breathing it can affect heart disease. It affects the development of children in utero and growth of babies after they're born. It, it produces higher rates of premature birth and and low birth weight. You know, every aspect of, of human health and mental health is affected by, by breathing this air. You know, schizophrenia um, attacks go up um, and rates of admission to mental hospitals go up when there's this kind of smoke in the air. Um, And we're talking about smoke now covering basically the entire east coast of that continent um, for a period of months. So it's not just a short-term exposure. It's a quite long-term exposure.
1: As an American, as an outsider to... Australia. How would you describe the national mood as you're talking to Australians, talking to fellow scientists and watching the news? It must be very distressing.
10: Stunned is the word that I would use. Um, It's just hard to believe that we're actually witnessing this because there is no precedent for the scale and intensity and the speed at which these um, uh, bushfires are spreading. Uh, Many people have have read about the the plight of the koalas. Um, Thousands of koalas are are dying. Uh, They can't escape um, these fast spreading bushfires. It's almost post-apocalyptic. It's almost like we're viewing, we're, we're being given a vision of our future if we don't act on climate, but that future is now. We're seeing it happen. Michael, that leads to my next question, which is you've written that this isn't the new normal. It's in fact worse than the new normal. What do you mean? That's right. New normal. I, I don't like that expression in these contexts because it suggests that we have sort of arrived in this new state, in this new um, environment, and we simply have to figure out how to cope with it. But it's much worse than that. As we continue to burn carbon and pump these greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, uh, the planet will continue to warm. Uh, the con- continents will continue to dry out. The wildfires will become more intense and more expansive and even faster spreading Uh, what we're seeing here is a veritable tip of the iceberg um, and much worse Climate change impacts loom in our future if we don't act now. Is there a sense in your science, I was reading this the other day, that
1: some of the weather predictions themselves are sort of a bit broken because the fires themselves are creating weather. Is there a sense we're in uncharted territory even when it comes to the extremity of the extreme fire event that's taking
10: place? Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, there's surprises that are in store here, and they're not going to be welcome surprises, most likely. Uh, one of the things that we worry about is sort of a tipping point, and there's some indication uh, in the science that you do reach this point at which things become so dry, um, uh, conditions become so dry and, and so hot that these wildfires suddenly uh, become far more intense and they spread far more uh, quickly uh, you sort of cross this threshold where you enter into this new regime of catastrophic wildfire like what we're seeing play out and there is uh, the the possibility that there are processes that are playing out in nature that aren't actually contained within our models, and you allude to one: the fact that these the, these wildfires, these uh, bushfires, can actually create their own weather and feed back on themselves. They can create towering pyrocumulus clouds. They're like cumulonimbus thunder clouds um, that produce thunder and lightning, but they're actually created by the heating from the fire uh, beneath the atmosphere. These are the sorts of processes that are not contained in the models that we use to make projections, that we use to make forecasts. Um, and there's the very real possibility for that reason that we are under predicting with our current models how bad things can actually get. It's a reminder that uncertainty is not our friend, Uh, When it comes to the science of climate change, yes, there's uncertainty, but by uh, some measure, that uncertainty is actually breaking, not in our favor, but against us. As we learn more, we find that the system is more dynamic. Things can happen faster and they can become worse.
1: I have, I'm sure like you people in my Twitter mentions that are basically saying, look, it's, it's the drought. Australia is indeed in a historic drought right now. It's devastating. And yet that cannot be separated from climate change is how I understand the climate science. Am I, am I right
10: on that? you know, we can't isolate. We can't just say, hey, it's a drought or it's the Indian Ocean dipole, (laughs) which is a favorite term right now. Uh, There's sort of this mode of ocean and atmosphere variability in the Indian Ocean that can impact the monsoons that control uh, rainfall patterns here in the summer in Australia. Um, And people sort of get bogged down with all this stuff and, you know, sort of misattribute the problem. Well, hey, it's nature, uh, behaving the way it behaves. But but that's not true uh, because these processes, these mechanisms have been in operation for decades and centuries and millennia. And yet we have never witnessed the sorts of catastrophic impacts that we're seeing right now. One of the conversations I see you
1: have a lot is whether or not you can isolate these extreme weather events and you know that that classic sort of climate journalism question is any one event attributable and I'm starting to hear scientists like yourself say more and more this actually wouldn't have happened there is a very clear signal in events like this for climate change how do you explain that to our listeners in a in a kind of digestible way, because it is a bit of a complex idea, isn't it?
10: It is. And there's a lot of confusion uh, out there and a lot of misinformation and some disinformation. Uh, Too often we get caught up with uh, almost the semantic question of, you know, was this event caused by climate change? It's the wrong question. Uh, The real question was, was this event amplified? Was it made worse by climate change? And that we can affirmatively say, yes, yes because we have literally changed the the physics of the system.
0: If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. You know, basically the one company online. Lots of evil tendencies, owned by the richest dude in the world, that one. Chances are you shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases, I know some of you do, or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case, you might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to, but if you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think. I promise it does. And the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time.
5: Your story in the New York Times suggests that basically Rupert Murdoch fiddles while Australia burns. Uh, On New Year's, for example, when the fires were page one coverage just about everywhere in the world, uh, the Australian covered what? What? Well, so this
11: is. It was actually January 2nd, which is even worse because the fires had already shown how damaging they were. And there was no photo on the front page. And the lead story was about a potential alcohol ban. And so, you know, this is one of the examples of many in which it's not that it's not necessarily covered. It's that it's covered in a certain way and it's buried, you know, compared to other things that are deemed more important. Um, so, yeah, that's one example of many.
5: One of the narratives that shows up in the Murdoch properties, namely that this is no worse than usual. We have fires every summer. The point here
11: is that in Australia, we have always faced catastrophic fire days and deadly bushfires. And we will always face catastrophic
5: fire conditions and bushfires in the summer, in the future. That's just a lie. But it's a lie that that won't die. No, it's true.
11: I mean, I, I spoke to a, a News Corp columnist and and he said to me, you know, listen, I'm just trying to show a little bit of the history. Um, and then I went to a scientist who said, this is just a, a complete misinterpretation of how history works. And if you look at the, the science, if you look at the amount of area burned, if you look at the degree to which areas are vulnerable, the intensity of the fires, this, this is unlike anything that's been seen before. You've got subtropical rainforests that are burning, places that have never burned before, that are so dried out, that they're burning again. You know a lot of people in Australia are asking, "Well, why hasn't the government tackled this? And when they start to think about the reasons, one of the things they look to is is the Murdoch media, and they see or they believe that that conservative media has kind of given the politics a safe harbor to not do anything. For more than ten years, scientists in Australia have been saying the fires are going to get more intense, they're going to burn more areas. You know, what we're seeing now has been predicted for a long time. And I think that's what's frustrating a lot of people with how the Murdoch press is covering it, because this was information that was known and expected in the scientific community for more than a decade.
5: Well, hold that thought. Um, there's a second claim that the conservative media uh, keep pushing, and that is that, uh, not climate, arson, arson.
2: There are calls for significant research into the minds of arsonists to boost our understanding of the condition and help prevent fires from being deliberately lit.
12: New South Wales police could soon charge more than a dozen suspected arsonists responsible for deliberately lighting bushfires across the state. At least 56 people have been charged or cautioned with 71 bushfire-related offences.
11: I mean, the arson talk has become uh, a more vocal narrative in the conservative media, you know, at the same time as there's this, you know, other crazy disinformation campaign, which we'll get into. But but when you look at the numbers, you know, in in Australia right now, there's more than 150 fires that are burning. The number of people that have been charged with arson that may have nothing to do with the fires is around 24. And so, you know, the number of lightning strikes, which is a pretty rare occurrence, Far outnumbers the number of cases involving arson. And so, you know, the issue, again, is one of prioritization and emphasis. And, you know, it's quite clear that when you put a giant story in the paper that says, you know, arson crackdown, you're signaling to the reader that this is supposed to be the thing you should be angry about. And so it's what many critics would say, just a clear act of deflection to try and keep people away from climate change.
13: Now, we've put putting clips of our Australia coverage on the BBC News YouTube channel on Twitter, too. And we keep getting messages from people claiming the story of these fires isn't climate change, it's arson. Here's an example of someone taking up the issue, saying it's not dozens of firebugs, it's hundreds. Climate activists are lighting fires in a desperate bid to amp up climate change fear. And we know that the hashtag arson emergency is being widely used.
5: This gets to the misinformation or disinformation campaign you alluded to a moment ago. You spoke to a guy named Timothy Graham from the Queensland Institute of Technology, who told you what?
11: So he told me that there was what appears to be a coordinated campaign using the phrase arson emergency, which is in contrast to climate emergency, um, to... Blame the bushfires on arson. And, you know, this intersects, not surprisingly, perhaps, with the emphasis of the conservative media. So you have hundreds of tweets that appear to come from either bots or trolls that are dominating the major hashtags around the bushfires. And so, you know, the conversation is basically being dirtied and muddied by a whole bunch of people and and potentially bots who are paid to muddy the waters. And it just happens to be a subject that also aligns with the conservative media. And a lot of these bots and trolls are accounts that clearly had been supporting, you know, conspiracy theories that were in favor for Donald Trump
5: that, you know, were pro-Brexit. There's a third counter-narrative thread, and that's that uh, green radicals are themselves getting in the way of fire mitigation initiatives like controlled burns that the tree huggers are actually exacerbating the conditions that feed the flames. Is there anything right. to that? You know, it, it's, it's interesting. In, when you're driving through, you know, national forest here, you see a lot
11: of fuel on the ground. And so it, it, it works from almost a visual perspective as an argument. But the problem is, that it's actually very hard to do backburning because of climate change. And so the irony is that the weather patterns have made it so difficult to find the exact right time because if you do it when it's too dry, then it burns out of control and creates bushfire. If you do it when it's too wet and you have extreme you know, weather events around rain, it doesn't work. Look, it's very clear and any fire service will tell you that the windows for hazard reduction through the winter are getting narrower and narrower. And so the firefighters I've been talking to have been saying, you know, it's not necessarily that this is a policy issue. It's just that it's a climate issue. And then you're often trying to do this with volunteer firefighters who can only do it on weekends. So you also have to time it, you know, quite perfectly, really, (laughs) to do this. It's a logistical challenge much more than it is a problem from the greeny left.
5: There was an Australian Broadcasting Corporation program, ABC, they call it, down under, uh, Media Watch... And it did a piece about the denialism and, they filmed a press conference of 23 former fire chiefs, you know, not ivory tower people, but the people who are on the front lines fighting the flames, demanding action on climate change. Bushfires are a symptom of climate change. I've had 39 years of Tasmania fire service and I didn't uh, um, see too many dry lightning strikes earlier on in my career. But now, and due to climate change, we're seeing this as a regular event.
0: Now, a slight lift in temperature overall, average temperature, means the extremes are more extreme. The scientists are very clear, their numbers are very clear,
5: more days of very high fire danger and above. And this was the theme in the Daily Telegraph, Sky News, the Courier Mail, the Herald Sun. Climate change isn't the cause of these bushfires. But there's
2: no doubt, and I'm not alone here, that two decades plus of climate change activism is making them worse.
11: The bushfire and climate change debate. It's dumb, it's reckless, it's offensive, we know that, but the Greens and others, so many cheerleaders in the media, are still doubling down on this stuff.
5: There are, for instance, the retired fire chiefs today who actually claimed, actually claimed, forget blaming the fierceness of the fires on the fact that not enough burning off was done to keep fuel levels in the bush under control. No, 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 no. The real problem, it seems, was that the Morrison government hadn't magically turned down the world's temperature by cutting Australia's tiny emissions. Conservative publications all, but not fringe outlets, correct? No, that's, that's exactly
11: right. And this sort of is part of the, the playbook that a lot of people criticise, is that anything that touches the left is somehow so tainted and poisoned that you shouldn't have to listen to it. So it's a way to dismiss all the facts and research and all the experience of these guys, which is decades of experience, and just say, oh, they're associated with some on the left, so you don't have to pay attention to them. Um, but in fact, you know, I've talked to these guys, too, and they're extremely knowledgeable. And this is a conclusion that they've come to through decades of on-the-ground firefighting. They're not out there banging the drum and saying, hey, we have to sack the prime minister. They're saying, hey, I'd like to sit down with the prime minister and talk this through. And even that, you know, for some, some for parts of the Murdoch press and parts of the conservative
5: right, is it, too much it wasn't too hard to understand how maybe a decade ago climate denialism would exist the science was plain but it was still somewhat abstract the threat may have seemed uh, theoretical and, and remote to those whose lives and livelihoods revolve around a carbon economy and culture and the suspicion sort of fits snugly into general conservative mistrust of experts and elites and uh, and liberal scolds but my God, the Australian continent, the size of the lower 48 United States, uh, is in a ring of fire, a ring of freaking fire. How, how, How is it possible for Murdoch and the rest of the conservative press and the prime minister to stake out these positions? And, and how in the world do they retain any legitimacy with, with the audience and the electorate? How? You know,
11: it's a very good question. You'll have to ask Mr. Murdoch. I'm not sure he's available. I think he's in the Caribbean at the moment. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, I do think that there is, you know, there is a constituency still for this information and for this way of looking at things. Because, you know... If you like the status quo, if the status quo serves you well because, you know, you own a coal company or you're close to government, then, you know, you don't want things to change. And so, you know, I do think that that sort of kind of human nature need to not change things <laughs> is a powerful force. There are still people who are persuaded by the doubt, um, you know, who are persuaded by the argument that, oh, there's always been fires or, yeah, blame the greeny lefties because we don't like them anyways and They're not like us. And so... You know, there are just parts of of, of the way people process information that, that make this still work for a very large community of people in Australia still. The other thing that I think to notice is that the debate and the political divisions around this kind of almost put climate change aside as this, like, toxic, volatile thing. There's a lot of people who, in these small towns, when I talked about this stuff, they don't really want to talk about climate change. So they just don't want to get into this fight and this argument. And so that's another thing, I think, that the way that this has been covered affects the public debate is that people don't engage with it as deeply as they would if there was more consensus. So the conversation still stuck at this place of, well, well do we believe this as opposed to what the hell do we do about it and we need to do something now?
14: That is a mystery of the, the climate change politics, though, because, you know, the rich people can avoid it up to a point, but they can't forever. When do they ever start thinking about what this means to their own lives? I mean, or they just think they can insulate themselves forever? Do you have any sense of the psychology of, of this kind of denialism?
13: The question of the, the, the psychology of it has been really interesting, because Morrison's response to the politics of this has been so inept tweeting out um, comments about the cricket as, you know, as the country is on on um, on fire, being a whole, but having photos of him circulating on a beach in Hawaii, you know, in a Hawaiian shirt, drinking a beer as, you know, the country goes up. And so I, I think one of the things that's happened is because the coalition built so much of its politics on climate denial. They then cannot face up to the symptoms of a climate emergency, which in this case manifests through a bushfire. So there's been a sense amongst a lot of people on the right to even acknowledge the severity of the disasters is in some way to grant ground to the left. So the right's response to this so far has been kind of divided there are a lot of people on the right who have been saying, well actually the disaster isn't that bad. And then from that, they're now pivoting to say, yes, the disaster is terrible, but it's the fault of the Greens. So so the argument that's that, that that's being circulated, and you see this all over, you know, Facebook in various boomer memes, is that the the disaster has been exacerbated because the Greens have refused to allow people to do hazard reduction burning. Oh, yeah, that's
14: the same idiotic thing that Trump says about the California fight.
13: Yeah, 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 totally. I think with Trump's one was about raking the forest, wasn't it? It's, yeah. It's, it's al- along those kind of um, lines, and it's absolute nonsense. You know, obviously the Greens aren't in power anywhere, but it's it sort of taps into this psychology that the that A, climate change doesn't um, exist, and B, the government telling you what to do is the real problem. So, you know, any kind of environmental restrictions in the country, that's the real problem kind of issue. And the politics at the moment are really in flux, I think, and it remains to be seen how this will kind of play out. I mean, it's still, you know, it's still very early in the year. and In some senses, it's still kind of the silly season so far as politics is concerned, except for these bushfires everywhere. So how exactly this will shake out, it remains to be seen, but... Certainly, it does seem at this stage that um, Morrison's authority has totally collapsed. I mean, there's been extraordinary scenes of him trying to visit some of these burnt out towns and just being showered with abuse by ordinary people. Where have you been? Why are you allowing this to happen?
14: Yeah, at the same time, a friend of mine on Facebook, uh, Brazilian, but teaching in Australia for a number of years, said uh, that uh, there was a muscle car competition going on in Canberra as the city was choked in fumes. This, this is this the psychology of like a good chunk of the Australian population? I think one of the
13: problems is that it's very difficult for people to know exactly what to do. I mean, this is the problem with climate change politics as a whole. Because it's such a huge problem and because uh, genuine solutions require global change, it's very difficult to turn the anger into um, an immediate campaign. Now, that may be changing a little bit in Australia because there are sort of concrete issues arising around the bushfires in terms of the fire services have been underfunded for a a long time. Um, These towns that have been devastated will need reconstruction um, programs and they're very unlikely to be a priority for the government because they're mostly poor areas or whatever. So it it sort of opens up some practical demands for the left that can perhaps be connected with the broader issues about um, climate change and ending Australia's reliance on um, fossil fuels. But in terms of how that impacts on mainstream Australian political sentiment – it's, it's difficult to tell at the moment that – I mean the perception is that the Morrison government is in crisis, that there, there is a fissure opening up between the federal government and the New South Wales government, who are both conservatives, but they're now each trying to throw the other under the bus as to who's at, who was at fault.
14: Do you rebuild these burned communities? Are just going to burn again in nine or ten months?
13: Yeah. So this is a discussion that hasn't even really been had yet. If this is the new normal, which it it, it seems to be so, 2019 was the hottest year ever recorded in Australia, Australia. had two of the hottest days ever recorded. But, you know, um, temperatures are set to keep on rising. So I think real questions will have to be asked about the viability of the way that Australians live in Australia. I mean, if you want to go dig really deep, Australia is a colonial settler state, and some of these issues about the relationship to nature and to fires go right back to the way that colonialism has reshaped the natural landscape. I think it is going to be a real question as to whether some of these towns will be viable. And again, and there's probably some parallel with the United States here, but in the Australian national psyche, the outback of the bush is tremendously important. Most people don't actually go there or live there, but they have this sense of themselves as you know, living on the rugged frontier or whatever. To see such vast areas of the countryside incinerated, something like half a billion animals, I think is the, the figure that they're quoting at the moment, being destroyed. How that is going to shake out, I, I think is really unclear, but it's, it's difficult to believe that it won't have quite a profound effect.
14: The friend of mine who uh, posted about the muscle car competition in uh, Canberra uh, also pointed to this macho psychology behind a lot of uh, climate denialism. That uh, you know, you have to dig for coal and have a big fat car because somewhere, some gender ambiguous person is riding an electric scooter. How important is that in the politics of a climate issue? Too?
13: Yeah, I, I, yeah. I mean, I think that is a really interesting point, and I think it is it is perhaps connected to the way that right wing politics is now cohering in the wake of the bushfires around this antagonism towards the Greens. I mean, in terms of a talking point, it's a kind of crazy, nonsensical one, but it does channel that real – I mean, fascist is maybe too strong, but it it has that kind of um, angry antagonism that the way to respond to climate change is to attack these middle-class wankers. You see what i mean so the the anger of the 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 climate denialists these mostly older, mostly white people towards environmentalists is quite extraordinary, so there's not not so much a sort of sense that well, there's something to learn from these people it 's that these are the people who are responsible for um, my country burning, and you can see I think the contours of a quite nasty uh, far-right politics emerging around climate denialism. I mean, you know, this is, Naomi Klein's been talking about, you know, eco-barbarism and, you know, after the Christchurch massacre there's been some discussion about eco-fascism. I think you... And I'm not trying to suggest that this is an imminent concern in Australia, because it's not not at all. But you can sort of see how this sentiment might emerge in the degree of anger that's that that that, that is in those sort of, those Facebook posts. This sense that we must defend our traditional way of life against the people saying that climate change means that um, we have to change in some way.
0: In these dark times, there aren't a whole lot of unambiguously positive things you can do to make the world a measurably better place, but there is at least one piece of low-hanging fruit that I always recommend. To help with our shift to a renewable energy future, we can sign up for renewable energy in our homes and offices. Depending on where you live, renewable energy may even be cheaper than the old fossil fuel sources, and of course, you only have to sign up once and reap the rewards effortlessly Indefinitely. If you live or work in New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, DC, Delaware, Illinois, Massachusetts, or Ohio, you can sign up with the clean energy company I've partnered with, Clean Choice Energy to sign up and support the show by letting them know that I sent you. Just visit cleanchoiceenergy.com slash best. You can easily find that link right in the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you'll find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestoflove.com. It'll make you feel good every time you see your electricity bill, so don't wait. There's nothing stopping you from signing up to use renewable energy right now, and it's easier than you think. Again, visit cleanchoiceenergy.com slash best to get started. When it comes to energy, Energy, now you have a choice. The Prime Minister
7: Scott Morrison was elected last year or re elected last year in a campaign that he won by surprise, in part by emphasizing the cost of taking action on climate change. It was actually an election, unlike many other that we've seen in the West that have deprioritized climate issues. This was an election that sort of Hung on the question of whether the country should be more aggressive taking action on on climate and decarbonization, and his opponent was expected to win running on a campaign focused on decarbonization and and taking action on climate change and Morrison won a surprise re election by saying that that would be too expensive and too problematic, so he is in the sort of model of Donald Trump in the u s and Gerald bolsonaro in Brazil to a lesser extent um, Putin in, in Russia people who are who see themselves as opponents of aggressive climate action and have made that a part of their public profile. Um, and he's honored that um, during this disaster. It's been quite a, to my mind, grotesque display of public leadership because the country is in an unprecedented um, natural disaster crisis that has now been unfolding for several months. And he has spent most of that time basically indifferent to that crisis because he has so boxed himself in as at least a climate skeptic, if not an outright denier. Now he's over the last couple of weeks taken a slightly more aggressive posture. He came back from a a two week vacation he took in Hawaii during some of the most intense burning and has mobilized the military. So he's beginning to um, to sort of take action at least on you know, at the level of trying to protect the citizens of Australia, um, rather than hanging them out to dry, as had been the case for the six weeks before. But I think the country as a whole has seen his behavior as sort of reprehensible and indifferent. And I think he'll be paying uh, quite a dramatic political price in the, in the weeks and months ahead. I think that his popularity is likely never to recover, um, because he's done such a poor job. Even putting aside the question of Australia's long-term carbon trajectory, he's done such a poor job simply managing the fact of the natural disaster, making sure that people who need to be evacuated are evacuated in a timely and orderly way and keeping the citizens of the country safe. Not to mention the ecological devastation that's that's come through um, the whole country, you know, wiping out whole ecosystems and, and putting, pushing many animals and anim, animal species to the brink of extinction. Um, this is, you know, obviously a lesser concern than the life of humans, but still, um, still something that Australians care very much about.
3: Of course. And in fact, didn't he come back somewhat reluctantly
7: from his vacation? Yeah. Yes. He, well, he, for, he sort of pretended that he wasn't on vacation and then, um, he got outed and he had to, yeah, he had to return, um, it's just i mean really terrible political optics to put aside even the direct suffering that he was helping cause i mean just to be lying on the beach while while the country burns
3: in fact there were climate talks in madrid just last month and i gather australia was one of the parties including the united states thwarting those climate talks
7: One of the sticking points is that Australia was basically trying to – it's sort of technical and complicated to explain, but they wanted to use credits that they had built up in previous climate treaties – Basically, to make it seem as though they were um, meeting their commitments under more recent climate treaties, and um, that basically torpedoed all of the progress that could have been made at those at those talks in Madrid. And they they were not the only nation that torpedoed those talks. The U.S. played a, a crippling role as well, and, and several other nations too. But Australia, you know, they're they're a particularly visible saboteur of this ongoing. International negotiation because they are the first world country at least that is being hit with the most intense climate impacts in general. Climate change is hitting the developing world first and most intensely, and that will probably continue. That's what science um, expect to see happen. That it'll be the global south that hits that's always hit hardest. Australia is sort of the one outlier there. They're the they're the they're the one really wealthy nation in the world that is dealing with a kind of climate change impacts that are otherwise only hitting the poor nations of the world. And so it's a, an especially um, important case study in how the wealthy West will respond to climate change going forward. And the results, at least from Australia, are, are quite dispiriting. Um, the politics has moved away from climate action rather than in the right direction. It may be that these wildfires turn things around, but that remains to be seen.
3: You had the Guardian newspaper put it this way, Australia took a match to U.N. climate talks while back home the country burned.
7: You can't argue with that perspective. You know, I think if you look at the public opinion polls in Australia, most of the public believes climate change is real, most of the public is concerned about it, and most even say that they want their government to be acting quite aggressively, first to decarbonize and also to combat the impacts of climate change. The problem is that that doesn't always translate when those people are going to the polls and voting for their leaders, um, and I worry that that pattern will be replicated elsewhere around the world. In the U.S., depending on how you ask the question, but somewhere between seventy and eighty percent of Americans are concerned about climate change, and yet we have a climate skeptic in the White House who may well be reelected next year. That's true also across Europe. The numbers in the polls are quite strong. People see; they say they see climate change as a kind of an near-term existential threat. And yet in very few countries of the world are there even political parties that are really prioritizing action on climate. And that disjuncture could really be problematic going forward where people are concerned, the public is concerned, but it takes a very long time for our politics to respond, if it ever does, um, leaving us basically out, out to dry.
4: Democratic Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey suspended his bid for the 2020 Democratic presidential nomination on Monday. The League of Conservation Voters praised Senator Booker for, quote, bringing environmental justice issues to a national audience. Booker's climate policy proposals focused comprehensively on ensuring justice for frontline minority communities that suffer the brunt of both industrial pollution and climate change disasters.
9: So this is above and beyond climate change itself, Tom is still in the race. He's still fighting uh, against climate change. As all of them are. But this is about climate justice, something quite different.
4: Exactly. The poorest communities, the black and brown communities, are the ones that suffer first and worst from industrial pollution and extreme weather events.
9: Another reason to be sad, Cory
15: Booker is gone.
4: Meanwhile, 2019 was the second hottest year on record since record-keeping began in the 1880s. That's according to the European Union's Copernicus Climate Change Service. 2019 capped off the planet's hottest five years on record and its hottest 10-year period ever recorded. All of it due to man-made climate change. In Australia's ongoing record bushfire crisis, two massive bushfires straddling the border between Victoria and New South Wales merged over the weekend Uh to create a mega fire measuring 1.5 million acres, larger than the state of Delaware, and that's just one fire. Driven by record-shattering heat and record drought, Australia's fires are now so huge they are creating their own weather, including thunderstorms. The bushfire are releasing millions of tons of CO2 and pollution into the atmosphere. Wildlife experts now estimate that bushfires in the southeast alone have killed more than a billion animals. This
9: is horrific, these fires in Australia. How long does wildfire season go down there?
4: It's going to go for several more months. Australia's economic damages from the 2019 fire season so far have already topped $2 billion and counting, and the season has not even peaked yet. Climate disasters are also costly here in the United States. Last year, the U.S. experienced 14 extreme weather and climate disasters that exceeded a billion dollars or more in losses. That's from multiple events like the record Midwest floods, hurricanes Dorian and Imelda. That's all according to NOAA's annual extreme weather report out on Monday. Overall, extreme weather and climate disasters in 2019 cost the U.S. nearly $150 billion. The number of events is is also increasing. Since 2010, the number of weather disasters costing a billion dollars or more was twice the number that we saw during the early 2000s. Extreme weather disasters over the last five years alone have cost the U.S. $525 billion. Wow.
9: And to be clear, when we're comparing billion-dollar storms, that is after they are adjusted for inflation, correct? Correct.
4: Finally, 150 people were arrested, including veteran actors Jane Fonda and Martin Sheen, on capitol hill on friday during fonda's final weekly climate demonstration in dc known as fire drill fridays demanding political action on climate change it's part of a new national campaign launched by environmental groups called the stop the money pipeline to pressure banks investment firms and insurance companies to stop financing the fossil fuel industry and the climate crisis here's fonda
3: it's called suicide investing it's insane and one of the worst offenders is J.P. Morgan Chase. It's one of the largest sources of capital to the fossil fuel industry and their quest to drill
4: and frack and mine. The Fire Drill Friday protests go nationwide on February seven.
8: Umer Irfan, I, I, for us Americans, maybe unhyphenated Australian or Australian Americans, the images that we're seeing are, in fact, so horrific. Particularly with the remains of of dead koalas and and other animals, are there things that we can do? You you tend to just sort of feel so powerless watching this stuff.
9: Yes, there are you know relief organizations that are working actively on the ground. Uh, the uh, firefighting units, you know, you, you mentioned that they're most of them are volunteers. You can actually find them, you know, like the new New South Wales Rural uh, Fire Service, for example. You can donate to these fire services directly and help them get the resources they need. Um, you know, these are firefighters that usually anticipate a one to two month fire season, and now they're coming up on three to four. And so many of them, as one of the earlier callers mentioned, you know, are, have been away from their jobs for a long time, and so uh, that some of them are just relying on relief support for that. Um, As far as animals, I mean, like, there are groups like the World Wildlife Fund that are, you know, raising funds for koala conservation and many of these iconic um, Australian species. You know, I think one thing to emphasize is just that how unique the wildlife, the flora and the fauna in Australia is. It's a place that has... Um, been isolated for millions of years from the rest of the major land masses in the world and then for a long time, uh, with minimal human influence, mainly aboriginals who were, um, living there for a long time and, and largely in equilibrium before we had, you know, widespread industrialization. And so, uh, this was a very, um, unique set of, um, circumstances that allowed, you know, about more than 200 unique mammal species things like you know the wallabies the koalas the kangaroos and wombats and things like that that you really can't find anywhere else in the world and ecologists are deeply concerned that with the wildfires that the species that were already threatened are now going to face even more pressure and some of them may be driven toward extinction and so wildlife conservation is a big element of that groups like the australian red cross they're raising funds as well for uh disaster relief and helping getting people back into new homes as well like you know more than 2,000 people have lost their homes and many more have been dislocated so um yeah there's a lot there's going to be a lot more um groups that are working together i think there's a website called give it g-i-v-i-t that allows you to actually if you're in australia to find specific things like items that people might need and um, give them right away rather than simply just handing out money so uh, there are a lot of different ways you can help and and different websites will will point you in the right direction
15: response, led by Australia's right-wing prime minister and leader of the Liberal Party, Scott Morrison, has been, as you'd expect, absolutely disastrous and morally repulsive. They have been reactive, and the federal government has not uh, – they have not been reactive as in the way they need to be. The federal government has not worked with firefighters to coordinate comprehensive solutions. Lack of funding and attention to climate change has made the problem worse worse. But of course, that is precisely what you'd expect from the type of troglodytic governance that Morrison represents. Take a look at this clip from February
0: 2017. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. This is coal. Don't
10: be afraid. The Don't be scared. Won't the hurt treasurer hurt knows the rule on crops. It's coal. It was dug up. Men and women who work and live in the electorates of those who sit opposite, from the Hunter Valley, as the member for Hunter would know. It's coal that has ensured for over a hundred years the Deputy that Australia Prime has enjoyed an energy competitive advantage that has delivered prosperity to Australian businesses and has ensured that the Australian industry has been able to remain competitive on a global market.
15: Now, this exemplifies everything, and in fact, uh, uh the prime minister was on trade missions and aggressively promoting coal overseas, even as this crisis started. But it really distills some very important points here. One, Australia is a microcosm of a global problem. Australia's center-left party also has had a very close relationship with the coal and other uh ecologically damaging industries. Uh, there is a Green Party that has real presence in Australia, and they're promoting a Green New Deal, which we'll get to in a moment. But as we see in so many examples, there is a intransigent, world-destroying, reactionary right wing that is following the logic of capitalism, which is that you just need growth, everything else damned. And then a punitive neoliberalism, who both because of the Profound limits of its vision will never actually come to terms with the ecological crisis, and because of its methodologies almost always target the middle class and the working poor, they generate an oppositional relationship between ecological outcomes and a already highly under pressure 99% in the context of global capitalism. We do need a Green New Deal. And we do need to recognize the incredible importance of the leadership of Bernie Sanders and AOC and leaders across the world in talking about this. But we also need to be very aware that if we don't do this with a global vision that is coordinated with an international effort from the relationships between the United States and China, the United States and Russia – the European Union, a real serious partnership built on technology transfer, mutual trade, debt relief, and other steps across the developed world that have been undermined by corporate exploitation and imperial foreign policy. The Green New Deal itself can replicate some of the same problems and dynamics that have gotten us to where we are today – really important piece of work that I want to mention, put up on screen in the global African worker that our friend Bill Fletcher Jr. is involved in. This piece is called The Coming Green Imperialism. And I want to just quote, sorry, The Coming Green Colonialism rather. And I want to quote from this piece, which I'll tweet out later. So-called nature-based solutions, including carbon offsetting mechanisms that allow polluters to carry on polluting while claiming that their pollution or emissions are offset by mitigating activities such as planting trees or corralling off forests as carbon sinks. When nations speak of carbon neutrality, they're basically speaking of solving the climate crisis through mathematics and not through any real climate action. And this is in relation to a very disappointing recent UN climate conference, which once again focused on scientific statements and techno micro solutions, which can, as an example, if we don't get serious, lead to – look, there is no doubt that the proliferation of electronic cars had a relationship to the coup in Bolivia – Vital natural resources are still going to play a role in the energy transition. So the question is, how do you manage the extraction of those resources in a way that does not re- replicate the same patterns? It's no longer enough to talk about raising awareness. It's about talking about the root causes of climate change, and that is capitalism. In terms of reality, we need to graduate Capitalism is on a collision course with planet Earth, and timing is, time is running out, and that's global warming, that's species elimination, and that is also the quality of life and well-being for a vast majority of humans on this planet. The right wing will add fuel to the fire. They will throw gasoline on a koala bear themselves, but the center will do nothing That upsets global finance. For most people, inaction is not an an option anymore, but climate action in the global north cannot be at the expense of the global south. We must be clear about the causes of climate destruction and support a Green New Deal that addresses the problem without sacrificing the global south to a new green colonialism.
0: We've just heard clips today, starting with the Mother Jones podcast featuring a firsthand account of an evacuation from a fire zone. The Brian Lehrer show looked at the warnings Australia had and what we can expect in terms of future climate effects. Diane Rehm discussed the immediate health impacts of living with smoke from Diane Rehm discussed the immediate health impacts of living with smoke from bushfires. Mother Jones spoke with Michael Mann about why it's wrong to call this the new normal. On the Media explained the Murdoch Empire's effect on the climate debate. Behind the News discussed the trickle-down effect from media propaganda that takes the form of a culture war tied to climate. Diane Reem spoke with David Wallace-Wells about the climate politics in Australia. The Green News Report laid out climate news from Australia. The Green News Report laid out climate news from Australia to the fire drill Friday protests in DC. The Brian Lair Show also looked at some of the actions you can take to help Australia. And finally, we just heard a commentary from The Michael Brooks Show on the real driving force behind the climate crisis. Members will hear more on the politics of climate action, as well as the effect of animals in Australia on our willingness to care. To hear that and all of our bonus content, which also includes more voicemails and commentary from me, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash Left. And now, we'll hear from you, though this first message has been modified to protect both the innocent and the guilty.
12: Hey Jay, it's from Connecticut calling in from a secret location I can't be discovered doing this I got my wife's phone here and I got my daughter's phone here and I've gone and I've deleted their on <laughs> app and I went to the best of the left website and clicked on the Amazon link and I got an iPhone and at the bottom of the page there there's a little box with an up arrow and I pushed that and I scrolled down to add to home screen and then I called it on and saved it on their desktop so that they have a little different icon that says but now they'll have to log in the first time so they might be suspicious they might get on to me but it's a shortcut to through best of the left so they'll be supporting the show and they won't even know it so anyway um i hope i don't get caught here so i'm calling from inside well Inside of Connecticut, but outside of the house, so um, inside out. That's what happens on almost holidays. Anyway, stay awesome, and don't tell anybody. Bye.
6: Hi, this is Heather from Colorado. I had a thought. I've been kind of stewing on it for a couple of weeks now, and I really wanted to hear more of your thoughts and opinions on this because I'm seeing the same thing. That happened in the 2016 election with the Democrats and Progressives happening again, which is where, you know, we had this in the beginning when we had, you know, such a huge array of candidates starting out with the debates, and it was great. You know, you had people that were obviously for or against other candidates for various reasons, but I've seen it getting worse and worse the past couple of months, where we're now... It's like the community, the progressive and democratic community is now, again, devolving into this (sighs) ad hominem attacks and and identity politics bickering, and it really doesn't feel constructive. It, It feels like we're doing exactly, like I said, the same thing we did in 2016, where we split up and then we weren't a united front when we needed to be. And that's, you know, how I feel Donald Trump got elected. Because, you know, I think so many people had gotten so caught up in in wanting Bernie Sanders to be president that when Hillary got the Democratic candidacy spot, you know, everyone that was in Sanders camp kind of got dejected and frustrated and just kind of gave up. And I can definitely understand that because I was definitely more of a Sanders person than a Hillary person. Definitely would have taken Hillary over Trump any day. Definitely. But I'm, I'm just seeing it again. I'm so worried it's going to happen again this election year. You know, I think from the very beginning, when we had all the candidates available, I think I would have been happy with almost any of them. I think all of them had something to offer, something to bring. There were definitely some that I felt had stronger positions and stronger plans than others. But now we're getting more into, like, Warren and Sanders, which I think from the very beginning were always the two strongest candidates. They were always the ones that I picked out that I thought had the clearest objectives and um, the history that they needed to know where to go with this. So I'm, you know, I'm very happy with where we're at right now with, with Warren and Sanders. But again, I'm seeing, especially on social media, just a lot of attacks on each other. People saying, if you're this demographic, you should be voting for this candidate. Or this is why this candidate is horrible and everyone who follows them is horrible and um, like I hate it. I, I don't like that at all. I would be happy with either Warren or Sanders. And honestly, I'm hoping that whoever ends up does, you know, ends up getting the candidacy candidacy spot will take the other on as a vice president running mate. Because I think I would rather have them as a as a combined force. I think that would be amazing. They would be a dynamic duo. So I just wanted to hear your thoughts and opinions on this inner party fighting that we're seeing again starting to happen and what we should really do to kind of stop it. I don't really feel like getting into the quagmire of Twitter fighting that that goes on but but I'm so so afraid that we're going to have a repeat of 2016 of us just fighting and bickering and not getting anywhere. What can we do to be unified? What can we do to avoid this? And avoid a repeat of 2016, where we have Trump elected again. I'm just, <laughs> I'm so unsettled. I, I've seen it just kind of getting worse and worse, and I, I don't know what to think. Anyways, thank you so much. I love your show, and um, you know, I did hear you talking a little bit about identity politics on your latest episode. So, um, just kind of related to that because this, it's a huge part of what is causing the fighting. But I I think it's more than that. I, I think it's it's like we're breaking up into teams within ourselves and we just don't we can't afford that right now. Anyway, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Bye bye.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, just first to address the anonymized caller, anonymized for his own protection. Uh, Obviously, I don't endorse Anything that he was saying, I mean, shopping, uh, scratch that off the list. I'm not a big fan of that. Shopping on the internet is just that much worse. I mean, some days I, I find myself uh, hesitating to endorse the internet in general. And then you got smartphones, and, and we we know what devastation that way lies. So scratch that. And, and then you, you bring it all together, and you talk about uh, bookmarking a shopping website. You know, one of the world's largest on your home screen on your smartphone to make it that much easier for you to do your online shopping and obviously I'm not going to be in favor of that that said uh, it totally works uh, it, exactly as as that caller described it really is uh, helpful for the show and unfortunately we are in the position of earning uh, you know a, a decent chunk of of the revenue that keeps this show going is earned that way and that method does exactly as the caller said it does so take that for what it's worth Uh, now moving on Heather called in about party infighting progressive infighting and and wondered my thoughts on this so you know unfortunately this is going to happen and there's no way to stop it but (laughs) what you can say should you find yourself in a position to influence a discussion that is happening this is the direction I would go I like to start by asking people what their theory of change is, because that's not talking about trying to convince them to agree with you. That's asking them to be thoughtful themselves about how to get from where we are collectively or where they are personally to where they want to be. What end goal do you have and what's your plan to get us there and how do your personal actions line up with Your theory of how to get to where you want to be, because when you ask that question, if you're talking to anyone vaguely left of the center of the spectrum, whether it be progressives or just the most moderate or even the most conservative Democrats you can think of, no one's theory of change should include infighting it just shouldn't that and people should see it as detrimental to their own cause to do that so in the in the primary it makes perfect sense for there to be some degree of infighting where you need to disagree about you know your different policies and your different visions for the future but it should be done in a respectful way with the foresight that once the primary is over we're going to need to all come together so you need to not say anything that you can't take back you don't want to create wounds that will not have healed by the time the general election comes around so what what the you know mod- I, I'm I'm going to I'm going to lash out a little bit what the moderate democrats what the corporate democrats often say is don't criticize anyone about anything ever how dare you even suggest that what we corporate democrats want isn't fantastic. See, that doesn't make sense. That's not how a primary works. We need to have disagreements. We just don't need to slash everyone to bits. So uh, let's sort of go through this chronologically. I'm on the progressive side. I like Bernie Sanders. I like Elizabeth Warren. I'm not saying that they're equivalent to each other, but I like both of them pretty well. So part of my theory of change is to Avoid infighting between those two candidates. It makes no sense for those two candidates during the primary to fight with each other. Those candidates fighting with each other or the supporters of those candidates fighting with each other only serves to help moderate and corporate Democrats. Because in order for one Bernie or Warren to win the nomination, there needs to be sort of a strategic alliance between them and between their supporters. But to broaden the perspective, you know, one more step beyond just the progressives, Democrats similarly, shouldn't be infighting with each other, you know, as I said, in a vicious way, because once you move past the primary into the general, in that case, infighting between conservative or, or moderate or, or corporate Democrats and progressive Democrats only serves to help Republicans. It's the way the system is set up. It's really unfortunate that that's the case. Maybe if we had a parliamentary system or a ranked choice voting system or something like that, then you could justify breaking out of those constraints and say, no, I'm going to fight forever for my candidate. Results be damned because the structure of the system could be set up in a way that you could do that without ultimately damaging your cause or damaging what should be your theory of change. But we have a what's called first-past-the-post election system in our primaries and our general elections, and the result of that is that the only thing that makes sense is, as I've described, avoid infighting with people who are generally aligned with you politically or ideologically, and then the next step is to vote strategically. So this is more or less the the strategy that I laid out months and months ago when this race started, uh, but I haven't talked about it since voting strategically, meaning that as a progressive with two progressive candidates, again, not saying they're the same. You can be much more ideologically aligned with one than the other. But if one of those two candidates, Bernie or Warren, is far more likely to win the primary election. I'm not talking about the general. I'm not talking about electability in the general election. I think they're both perfectly electable. I'm, as I'm saying, in the primary, if one is far more likely to win the primary than the other, then the strategic vote would be to vote for that candidate who is most likely to win to help push them past the post first to defend against corporate and moderate Democrats who also have a perfectly good chance of winning. If the progressive vote is split too dramatically, that absolutely opens up a space for a corporate Democrat to win. Even with far less than 50% of the vote, they may just get more votes than any other individual candidate. So you put it all together, and this is the purpose of avoiding party infighting, avoiding progressive infighting, And voting strategically, and the real lesson of all of this is that we should all be demanding ranked choice voting to allow for a more robust discussion without the need for all of the bullshit strategizing that inevitably has to come with our current broken undemocratic system. So when you see infighting, ask them what's their theory of change and remind them that infighting should not be included in anybody's theory of change. If you have thoughts on this, I would love to hear them. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen so coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of washington dc my name is jay and this has been the best of the left podcast coming to you twice weekly thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com And now for today's impeachment update via Limerick at Limerick's on Twitter writes Though Donald claims it's a coup I can't get the process I'm due It surely appears his jurors are peers He's crooked and they're crooked too